0: In today's episode, we will resume our discussion of 1 Timothy chapter 1. We began in our previous episode a discussion of verses 3 to 7. We actually only made it through the first part of verse 3. And verses 3 and 4 talk about the importance of addressing false teachers. And as we get into that, we look at the relationship that Paul has with Timothy, a mentor slash friend to a trusted disciple in the ministry, which is why he can give him this exhortation, not necessarily a command, but almost on par with that, this ministerial exhortation, as I urged you. Who's the I? Who's the you? It's Paul to Timothy. What was the exhortation? Remain. And we identified that as something that is stronger than simply stay, abide here, hang out. Uh, No, it's remain. Remain on past the point that you would normally consider to be a natural ending point to that. And so we looked at that. Well, now we're going to keep on going, and we've looked at the mentor friend to the disciple, we've looked at this word remain. When he urges him to do this, why? Why should Timothy remain at Ephesus while Paul goes on elsewhere? And that's what he says, right? As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. Okay, so now we get into the purpose. The purpose for Timothy remaining was to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay, the purpose in grammar is denoted by, uh, in the Greek language, This what you might hear sometimes if somebody delves into this, it's called a henna clause. That denotes purpose like 99% of the time. So when you see this hinna, it's often translated to, you know early on in your Greek. Uh, when you're studying that and you're getting vocab, you translate that word hinna in order that or so that. And that really denotes purpose. And that's what we find here. So we have a hinna clause and we say this is a purpose clause. What's the purpose? You may, the charge, friendly yet firm. You know, this is what Paul is doing so that Timothy would in turn charge or command. So he's urging him to stay. That's not the same level as a command, but he says, the reason I want you to stay is so that you may command others. And that's really what that word means uh, to charge. uh, That's translated as command or charge. It means to command others with authority, to give orders or to direct. Now, this is interesting because he says, as I urge you to remain so that you may, that sounds future tense, but the tense here, and this is why we talked about this in a previous episode, is aorist. Remember what aorist means? Completed action. Not necessarily that it's past tense so that you would complete the action of charging them Uh, to do these things, right? Uh, To command them. uh, And it's subjunctive, which means it carries the idea of possibility that they might, right? Certain persons that they might not teach any different doctrine. In other words, it's indicative of future purpose, So you will go there, you will do this with the authority of the gospel to the end that other people would not or might not teach different doctrine. We're hoping, in other words, that by the establishment of a solid gospel minister like Timothy, who has been trained and discipled by Paul, that he will be able to go to this place and keep that solid orthodox ministry alive and stop the proliferation of false teaching. So we get an insight a little bit to how a true church functions, and we'll get into how a church functions in this letter because he's going to talk about that. But it's interesting to see at the outset here that one of the things that a church exists to do, in addition to all the things that it does for the people who are part of the church, is to really stand as a beacon or a lighthouse in an area, a community, and to stop false teaching. You're going to charge certain people. You are going to command people not to teach different doctrines. So when you're there and you have the truth and you notice somebody swerving from the truth, and remember we went into that discussion on the fundamentals of the gospel, those things that cannot ever be compromised, twisted, or anything, that when you see somebody doing that, you stop them. So it's not just about building up in the edification of believers, a continuation of the apostles doctrine, go back and look at Acts chapter two, all of those things, it is all of those things, yes. But it's it's more than that. It is the preservation of the gospel and part of the preservation isn't just the proclamation of the true gospel, it is the standing against those who are perverting the gospel and so those who pervert the gospel who teach different doctrine this would fall under the category of sin because they are saying that god has said something that he didn't say or that he didn't say something that he did say or whatever right when they're changing that they're changing the very words of god and when you do that that is a form of sin this is one way that we can sin and so the bottom line here is that sin must be addressed when false teaching is present it has to be addressed. That's why Paul left Timothy there. Who's he supposed to charge? Just anybody? No. The text goes on to say certain persons. Now, Paul is tactful in the ministry, and this should not be missed. In chapter 1, the same chapter, verse 20, Paul mentions two that have shipwrecked their faith. Okay, If you look down to verse 20, he's going to mention them by name, himenaeus and Alexander. All right, And so that's important. But remember, he's tactful. So why not mention the others by name? Most likely because their offense wasn't as great and there was room for repentance and correction. So we have to ask ourselves a very practical question here. Hopefully everybody who's listening to this is part of a local church. We all make mistakes. Church is made up of redeemed sinners, And while we're all on this journey that's called sanctification, where we're trying to become Christ-like, we make mistakes along the way. We're going to learn how those are to be remedied in this letter, that when somebody is confronted in sin, they should repent of that. Even an elder in the church, that's going to come up in this letter. And that really goes to show that even elders, and and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be uh, you know, they're not perfect. They're not a different sort of people. We're the same people. We're the same material. We fight the same desires and those type of things. We're all called to live the same Christian life and to fight and wage that same spiritual battle. But sometimes we sin. The first time a pastor or an elder sins, are they to be immediately taken down from that office and thrown out of the church and castigated forever, you know, and thrown out? No, because they're not called to be perfect, okay? But the point is, is how we address those things is going to uh, give us an insight into to how things should go. But the other point is, and, and this is where I'm going with this, we all make mistakes. Everybody at some point in their life is going to make mistakes. And there has to be room for grace. There has to be room for repentance. There has to be room uh, for all of those. And so, If we don't give room for that, and the first time somebody makes a mistake, we just simply throw them out on their ear, well, that's a problem. And what we learn by bringing the example of Himenaeus and Alexander into this discussion from verse 20 is that apparently they had gone so far, had been given the opportunity, it seems by implication that they had actually been confronted, not just by Timothy, but by Paul, because Paul's the one who's mentioning them, and he's the one who mentions that they've shipwrecked their faith. They've been confronted. It seems to indicate that they have been confronted in their sins and in their false teaching, and their false teaching has resulted in the shipwreck of their faith to the point that they have completely walked away. Now, I am not going to sit here and dwell long on this, but I could ask the question, and you can probably think of somebody right away, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that has shipwrecked their faith, who has walked away from the tenets of Christianity, who once held it and no longer does. Right? So let the reader understand. And the point of that is is that Paul sees a marked difference between somebody like Himenaeus and Alexander and whoever it is that falls into the category of verse 3 as certain persons. And so I I take that, and I think I'm in good company here, that these people are not quite of the same, uh, they're not quite as far down the road as Himenaeus and Alexander, and so he doesn't mention them by name because they have the opportunity to repent and turn. And that is something that we can all learn from as well. Uh, not everything has to be just flaunted before the entire church. There has to be some grace. There has to be some discretion. There has to be mercy in all of this. And I think that that's uh, that, that's very important lesson for us. In the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, Hymenaeus and Alexander, it seems that their destruction was complete. Paul says, if you go on and read that section there, which we'll get to several episodes from now, that he had handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Very important there. So this certain persons shows that the group is smaller. Certain persons doesn't denote a large group. It seems to be comprised of a few individuals rather than the entire church. And it also shows the destructive power of false teaching. It just takes a little bit to, uh, to taint the whole group, if you will. And so that's, that's the importance here. That's why it has to come up. That's why false teaching has to be addressed, has to be nipped in the bud is because it can affect the entire group. Yes, it may only be present among three or four people. Maybe it's just two people in the church, but if left unchecked, those two or three or four people may have the opportunity to influence other people in the church and pretty soon it spreads like wildfire and that's that's really not good so he's given timothy a charge uh he charged him that he would be able to charge others sorry so he's urging him to command others to charge them to give orders to do what to, to, or who's going to be the recipient of those specific orders. It's going to be certain persons. And what is the subject of these certain persons? Why are they singled out? Because of wrong teaching, because they're teaching what he says here is a different doctrine. So he says, I, I want you to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The main problem, which required hands-on attention from Paul you know, and, and from Paul's best was this group of people. And he's leaving Timothy here, not because he's upset with Timothy, not because this is a punishment that Timothy is receiving, but because this is so important, right? This is the power of wrong teaching. This is the power of different doctrine. Some might argue that it required Paul himself, but there comes to a a point Uh, where we have to trust the next generation to pick up the weapons of our warfare and to continue to fight the good fight. And the word here for different doctrine literally could be translated as another teaching, right? So we could render it this way. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach another teaching. Okay. And that shows how important it is. You know, you think about people quote Spurgeon, people quote Martin D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You know, I'm thinking of preachers from yesteryear and you know, we go back and we benefit from the, the sermons of Spurgeon for sure. I have a whole section in my library of sermons that are, you know, were preached and written, copied by Spurgeon and we benefit from them still to this day. But he didn't live forever. He went to be uh, with the Lord. He went on to his heavenly reward. And somebody had to pick up the mantle. And that's the point. He fought his fight in his day. You think of the downgrade controversy, which was, you know, the big theological thing that he fought, but, uh, you, you know, go back before his time, you think about the marrow of divinity in Scotland, and I, I mean, there's just, it's incredible who has fought these wars Uh, theological battles, if you will, for the integrity and the purity of the gospel. But now these people who originally did this are off with the Lord and we are facing our own uh, battles today. And the reason that we have people today to fight these wars is because others did and trained up other generations to go and do the same thing and to take up that mantle because the The doctrine, the gospel has to be preserved until Christ comes. And by the way, we're going to locate in this letter. It happens here in 1 Timothy that the church is the steward of the word of God, is the steward of the gospel until Christ returns. So we have a sacred duty to make sure that the gospel remains undefiled. And that's why it's so important. This is why the the tone of the letter is incredible because he starts off and after he gets through the greeting it's like wham right in to addressing and confronting false teaching or another teaching because it's distorting the gospel. Paul was passionate about the integrity of the gospel. There are a lot of things that the church can do to bring shame to the name of Christ, okay? There are a lot of things that the church can do to bring shame to his name for sure. And those things need correction as well. Just look at the state of the Corinthian church in the New Testament. Never mind getting to today's churches and uh, organizations that masquerade as churches. Okay? We won't even go into that. But just go back and look at at the Corinthian church. Okay? But if you abandon the gospel itself and begin teaching different doctrine, then the battle is all but over. And by the way, I would just recommend go back and read the opening chapters of Revelation, specifically chapters two and three, and see and read about the seven churches that John addressed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One was this church, by the way. So that's interesting. Not all of them were bad, but there were some churches who had abided false teaching and they are going to be handed over for destruction. That's how important, uh, you know, making sure that we maintain the integrity of the gospel is because at the time that God's wrath is coming upon the world and is about to come upon the world, you have churches that are in different states, Churches that are struggling, churches that are hanging on, churches that have been persecuted, but other churches that have let Satan in the back door, and they are going to be handed over for destruction. Note the strong tone that we find in another of Paul's letters, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and verses 8 and 9. Listen to this language. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's verse 6. Verse 8 But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Very strong language there to make sure that we understand that you cannot counter the gospel in any way, shape, or form. So where does this other teaching come from? Possibly what follows in verse four is connected. So we'll just take a moment here. I know we're running a little bit long on today's episode, but let's tie in verse four because it's gonna help us understand. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. All right, so what we have here, I believe, is wrong thinking. This is one of the ways that the, the perversion of the gospel can sneak into a church is somebody can take something that is the right thing and then, you know, just twist it around and that's not good. Okay. So we have wrong thinking about the right topic. And now they're taking things that are ancillary to the gospel. They're not the gospel themselves, uh, things that, you know, legends that have come up around it. That's what a myth is, or a genealogy. We'll talk about that in a moment which promotes speculation. We can't be dogmatic on those things. And then that speculation uh, then affects our ability to make sure that our preservation of the gospel is intact, okay? So he says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So this is the same group of people that, you know, is being affected by this myths and endless genealogies. These are the certain persons, okay? So they're tied together grammatically with different... uh, Uh, with the different doctrine group by nor right nor to devote themselves so they're they're tied in that way in other words the same group teaching different doctrine has become distracted from the pure gospel by these two things myths and endless genealogies what's really interesting is how this departure happened and that is they devoted themselves to this verb devote uh, we won't spend much time here but it means to turn one's mind to and this is really uh, also instructive to us. Why? Because it, it shows us that they turned their mind to these things, which shows us really by absence what it is that they should have their mind on. If their mind was turned to these things, what was it on before? It seems to have been on the pure gospel, on right doctrine, and they turned it from that to these things, which means that the focus of our mind Should be on the gospel should be on right doctrine and pure doctrine. We should always be focusing on that to devote our mind or to turn our mind away from the gospel into other things that are ancillary to the gospel that spells trouble from the get go. And. I think we'll see by way of application that it's not just myths and genealogies, but we have things today, certain societal issues that come up that some people get preoccupied with that may have some connection to the gospel. That's why I always say they're ancillary, but they're not the gospel themselves and people get sidetracked by them. And when they get sidetracked by those ancillary issues, now they get Uh, drawn away from that which should have been first and foremost okay so what distracted these guys let's just start here in the text myths and genealogies these are distractions from the pure gospel okay myths and endless genealogies this is chasing rabbit holes even theological ones for which the scriptures do not provide an answer when we do that it is a pursuit from which no one can recover And we need to understand that. So when people have myths and you have to understand this, like, can we learn something from the Apocrypha? Yes. Okay. The Apocrypha being those, uh, those books that are included in the Catholic Bible, but are not included in ours because they weren't recognized as canon because there are certain markers and we don't, (laughs) we certainly don't have time to go into that, but there are certain, uh, things that, the criteria that the, the candidate for scripture for Canon has to make in order for it to be approved with Canon. It can't contradict other parts of scripture. It, uh, it has to say true things, uh, about, you know, God and it, it has to have there. We just don't have time to go into all that. Okay. That's why the Apocrypha doesn't make it into the Protestant Canon. But when we sit here and spend time with that, and then pseudepigraphal writings, those are secondary to the Apocrypha. They're outside of the scripture for sure, but they are religious writings. and and we locate within them certain myths and things that come up. And this is the origin of a lot of, you know, a lot of religious hearsay for lack of a better term. I have seen in some groups uh, recently you know, that people will sit here and cite parts of the Apocrypha or pseudepigraphal writings. I'm thinking of first and second Clement and, you know, things like that. They will go to those writings and they'll find things in there that aren't present in the rest of scripture scripture, and they will just, they will zero in on those things. They're getting distracted and then they'll build their entire understanding of things like, you know, the big fascination today is with the Nephilim. Of course, it's not just today. People have always wondered about that. Genesis chapter six, the opening verses of that chapter, you know, talk about the, the Nephilim and sons of God and the daughters of men and who are these people and all this. Well, people look to extra biblical writings and try and come up with it. That, that's myths. Okay. And we don't have a concrete answer on that. And the point is, is we can spend all day looking at that, but that's not going to help us get closer to Christ. And there, there's no want uh, for distractions that can tear us away from the gospel. So we have to choose carefully the th- how we spend our time and what we look at and focus on when it comes to the gospel and to church. Okay. And so this is where false teaching you know, originates looking at myths. Genealogies, uh, as we'll come to find out later, this is going to keep coming up again and again. You look at genealogy and say, well, how does a genealogy contribute to false teaching? Well, here you you start making links to people, right? Because we have lists of names and some of the lists are different and we wonder why. And this really kind of gets us into what today is called numerology, And you have a lot of people who look at the Bible and say, well, listen, God doesn't make mistakes. And I'm not saying that he does, okay? And not only does God not make mistakes, but everything that he did was purposeful. Well, I agree with that as well. And so then they say, well, what if the letters in our, you know, the letters in a word have numerical value and, you know, all of a sudden the the value of this word equals 666. That's, you know, that's a bad number, right? Revelation chapter 13, uh, that's the number of man, you know, well, it depends on how you add up all those letters, right? Uh, are you using the King James Bible? Or are you using the ESV, the NASB, the NIV? Uh, those are going to give you different numerical values. I'll just say that. So that's basically what they're doing. They're taking each letter or a word and assigning it a numerical value. They're drawing connections between people. And it's like, we have genealogies in the Bible. If you go back and listen to some of the series that we did in in the episodes in the book of Genesis, the reason that we have these is to show us where people came from or to make a direct line to a person. So do we have in the genealogies that we have two different genealogies of Christ in the New Testament, you know, do we have an exhaustive genealogy every single person? Well, not every single person necessarily, but... We have enough to show us that there is an unbroken line all the way back to Adam and one also back to Judah, you know, for the kingly line, uh, you know, and establishes that with David. So, uh, you know, we have to understand the purpose here, but when you get too caught up in that and this kind of ties right in with myths, then the genealogy here, we get focused on numerology, we get focused on those things rather than the actual gospel itself itself. And when we do that, that can lead us to being absolutely 100% distracted from the gospel and from keeping the main thing, the main thing. The outcome of these speculations is what? When they do this, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship uh, from God that is by faith. This was very prevalent. Uh, you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, as he's closing this out. This is the end of his ministry. Titus one verse 14, go back and look at those scriptures up, but people do this all the time. Turn to the world of speculation and numerology and then make bold assertions. This, by the way, is the same group that we see in verse seven where we read this and we'll get to this in, in another episode very soon here, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. <laughs> okay. So this is that group. And so when all of a sudden it's like, well, I read this in second Clement or first Clement, or, you know, I read this in Matt in the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha. Oh wow. Uh, this is very, very important. And you pull somebody aside and said, did you know that the Bible said this Or, or not the Bible, but did you know that in first Maccabees, it says this well, or in Tobit or whatever, right? Then we have a problem. Okay. Now we're making an assertion about something that you don't know anything about. You haven't done the proper research in the proper context and you've left the gospel. And that's why this is so, so very important. All right uh one commentator said this this is uh, William Hendrickson and Simon Kistemacher. they uh, partner together in a commentary on the bible but it was a very interesting comment here in every age there are people who love to indulge in such strange mixtures of truth and error so you got a little bit of both here okay They even treat these adulterations as being the all-important thing. They carry on lengthy debates about dates and definitions. Instead of brushing aside all such syncretistic rubbish, they discover fine distinctions and engage in hair-splitting disputes. They pile myth upon myth, fable upon fable, and the end is never in sight. Thus, the law of God is made void by human tradition. They're citing Matthew 15, verse 6 in there, and the picture drawn in the sacred original becomes grossly distorted. That is an excellent, excellent uh, summation of all of this. So what is required then? What is required by God is stewardship that is uh, the stewardship from God that is by faith. Or to put it a different way, faith-centered stewardship is what is required by God. He wants us to steward the gospel, and that's going to take faith. You're going to have to look at the gospel. You're going to have to keep the gospel right at the center of everything all the time. When we're tempted with other things that aren't the gospel, we need to choose to say no so that we can preserve the integrity of the gospel always. Well, I have definitely gone over. We finally got through verse four. We're going to end right there and pick it up in verse five in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.